If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10. As I tactfully take out my gum and put it over here. Because sure, shooting it would spit out and land in someone's hair and might get sued for something. I don't know. Um, a couple reminders as you're turning to Hebrews 10. Um, one is this, I haven't mentioned this for a while, but I, several months ago, uh, challenged the church to, if, you, if at all physically possible, uh, and you feel so led, to have a one day a week fast for a period of time. And many of you are doing that, and uh, we appreciate that, and I want to remind the church of that. Uh, take one day a week out. There's a power uh, in fasting. The, the scripture is solid on this. And be praying for wherever God leads you to pray for, whoever God leads you to pray for, your family, your marriage, your friends. But also, would you fast for the church? Um, that we would be, and this is our only aspiration, we would be what God wants us to be. And that we would have our niche in the kingdom, the niche that God wants us to have. And that we'd be protected from the enemy who is forever trying to get in and screw things up. And so I want to, um, we desperately need that. We desperately need covering. And uh, so I want to encourage you to be praying for, and then one day a week, if at all possible, fast. Uh, with part of the reason being uh, the ministry of the church. also want to remind you of another principle that we laid out, hammered a home real big time uh, last year, just feeling the need to remind us of it. And that is to make your house uh, a house of prayer. Uh, in fact, to make your life a life of prayer, in this sense specifically, that wherever you go, whoever you see, wherever you're driving, whoever cuts you off, you are to be a vehicle of blessing to the world around you. We are mustard seed people. The kingdom of God spreads through us. Not just by what we do and not just by what we say, but how we pray. And so, in your neighborhoods, be about praying for your neighbors. They don't need to know about it. They wouldn't, won't know about it, but it does things in the heavenly realms. We have an incredible authority as, as an army in Christ. Amen? Incredible authority in the spiritual realms that unbelievers don't have. So use that authority to have the Father's will done on earth as it is in heaven. The Father wants to bless them. Uh, and, and be praying for them. Pray for the marriages. Pray for the kids. Pray for the finances. Pray for whatever, however God leads you to pray for them. But be about blessing them. And on the road, bless people. That's sometimes a little bit hard. Uh, but boy, it, you're a blessing machine, and it does things. Fasting and blessing. Now Hebrews. What we're doing is a, uh, continuing our study in the book of Hebrews, and we're right now looking at Hebrews 8 through 10. And there's two themes that are talked about in Hebrews 8 through 10, uh, as I mentioned last week. There's the tabernacle. And the covenant. The author in Hebrews 8 through 10 is very interested in showing how the new tabernacle that God has created uh, from uh, the coming of Jesus Christ completes and supersedes the old tabernacle. He's talking to these Hebrew Christians who are thinking about going back to their Judaism and he's saying, don't do that. For a lot of reasons, two of which are, we have a new tabernacle. Don't go back. The, the other one was a foreshadow of what was to come. It's now been completed. So Four different times throughout Hebrews 8 through 10, he brings up the theme of tabernacle. He interweaves another theme through there, and that is the theme of covenant. And last uh, year, for a period of several months, we talked about the tabernacle. And this year, for a period of who knows how long, we're going to talk about covenant. And they're woven in and out uh, of these three chapters. And what the author is intent on showing is how the new covenant completes and supersedes the old covenant. Why would you Hebrew Christians want to go back to the old covenant? That's basically what he's arguing for. Now he, he interchanges these themes uh, left and right. And for a modern reader uh, in America reading this, th these are confusing chapters. Uh, and the reason is because he can presuppose a lot 
of information about covenant and tabernacle on the part of his audience that we can't presuppose today. And so what, we, what we've decided to do is to treat this thematically, to treat tabernacle as one issue and then to treat covenant as another issue. And that's what we're doing uh, here this morning. Uh, the verse I don't, I'll just read, uh, it's out of Hebrews chapter 10. And it's just a springboard for what I want to talk about here this morning. The Lord says in verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. After saying that, he adds this, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds, literally, their covenant-breaking deeds, I'll remember them no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And then he goes in to talk once more about the old tabernacle. I also want to read from Ephesians chapter 5. I don't think I'm going to get to actually the main point that I want to make here, but it serves as background. Um, last, first hour I didn't get to it, and I probably won't this hour. But it's good. it sets up what I want to speak about here this morning. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll start with verse 21. Be subject to one another out of reverence in Christ. He's talking to husbands and wives here. And it would be easy for me to have a sermon right now on that wonderful passage, that incredible passage. First century Jew telling husbands and wives, wives and husbands, to be subject to one another. That is wild in the first century. Here's how you do it. Verse 22. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which, note that, the single body of which, he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. I thought the husbands would be saying amen at this point. Okay, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, this is what he means by subject yourself to one another. Wives, you do it this way as the church to Christ. Husbands, this is what he means by head. Here's how you do it to your wives. And I'm not preaching on marriage here this morning. But it lays the groundwork for uh, what, I'm, what I am going to be preaching about. Husbands, you do it like Christ did it, who gave himself uh, for the church. Verse, verse 26. In order to make her holy by, the, by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot, without a wrinkle, without anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. This is why the Lord died for the church. Husbands, go and do likewise. Tall order. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now look at verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. It's a covenantal term there. There's a joining that's going on here. A covenantal union. And they shall become one flesh. Something new comes into being when a husband and wife join together. Uh, there's a, a, a new reality there, if you will. And then Paul says this, this is a great mystery, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. What Paul really has in mind here, he's giving some instruction to husbands and wives about how to relate, how to subject to one another, uh, how to live out this covenant union that they have, and then he applies it to Christ and the church. If we don't understand covenant and what covenant does, we will never understand marriage, and we'll never, uh, never understand Christ's relationship to us. I want to, this morning, complete or at least move farther along uh, on, on the message that we had last week, laying some foundational things about covenant. What is covenant? Because it's very easy for us in this culture not to understand that, to miss it. 
There's some things in our culture that I think systematically prohibit us from getting a full understanding of this, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. Pray with me here for a moment. Lord, uh, um, I'm asking here, uh, this is, this is uh, it feels, God, like a, a major thing that needs to be confronted in our ordinary thinking, God, and that's very hard to do. I know so well that words alone are not going to do it. Holy Spirit, energize these words and fill them with your power, fill them with your love, fill them with your truth. And use them, Lord God, to change the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about you and the way we think about our relationships. And Lord God, even more profoundly, use them to transform the way we relate to you and the way we relate to ourselves and the way we relate in our relationships. Do it, Lord. We surrender it to you. Let your word be done in Jesus' name. And the army of God said, Amen. Amen. Good. This uh, message this morning, and it will continue on, I suspect, next week, is not an easy one. Okay, so I need you to put on some thinking caps here. Um, I'm going to be talking about something. Uh, we're getting down to the essence of what is covenant, the nature of covenant, why it's so crucial and why it's so central. And to do that, I have to talk about some deeply uh, embedded cultural ideas that we have that uh, I think stand in tension to the biblical idea of covenant. So I've got to talk about culture, and that's always hard to do because we are all, to some degree, products of culture, and now I'm asking us to stand outside of ourselves and to look critically at some of the ways we think. This is, this is difficult. I'm also going to have to talk a little bit about metaphysics and talk about some ontology and as distinct from phenomenology and things of that sort, but I won't use those terms. But this is going to be, uh, I think, a little bit challenging. And that's okay, right? In fact, it's really good sometimes to be given stuff that you've got to really struggle with, you've got to strive to understand. Um, the Word of God does that a lot. Jesus did that a lot in his talking. He talked in ways that made people, forced people, to struggle, to put up with some temporary confusion and, and unclarity in order to get to the gem at the end of the thing. And so this morning, maybe everything won't be clear, but I think it's a foundational, crucial thing that we're going to be talking about. Culture. Um, we are all products to some degree of our culture, and it's difficult to go against any element of culture. Let me give you a quote that I read this week out of a book by um, Daniel Goldhagen. It was, it's called Hitler's Willing Executioners. It's a tremendous book. I've always had a real interest in Nazi Germany because it says something about the power of culture. And here's what he says. No man can struggle with advantage against the spirit of his age and country. That is to say, if you're going to buck the spirit of the age, and you're going to buck the spirit of a country, you're going to be swimming upstream. You don't have the upper hand when you do that. And however powerful a man may be, it is hard for him to make his contemporaries share feelings and ideas which run counter to the general run of their cultural hopes and desires. What this author is doing here is he's, he's saying... He's explaining why, Hitler, why Hitler's program succeeded so effectively in Nazi Germany. And the reason is because he was tapping into some deeply laden cultural beliefs that had been in Prussia and then in Nazi Germany for some time. They had a way of seeing. Culture gives us a way of seeing, a way of thinking, a way of viewing the world. 
And in Nazi Germany, and even before that, there was a way of seeing Jews which saw them as subhuman. It was sort of a cultural assumption. People weren't usually explicit about this. Usually we're not explicit about cultural beliefs that we hold. But there was, in a deep laden, fundamental level, in the mindset of at least many Germans as a part of that culture, a deep strand of anti-Semitism. And Hitler was able to tap into that. And that explains why his program, which was on one level so monstrous, was on another level so successful. It also explains why it was difficult for people to stand up and say, wait a minute, this is wrong. To step out of their culture and, and, and look at things in any kind of objective way. And then to convince their contemporaries that what was going on was wrong. Because they're asking people to swim against the current. And people generally tend to flow with the current as culture goes. Culture forms us to a large degree. Now, to outsiders looking at the culture, it's, it may seem weird. It seems odd. You know, why, why, how weird do these people do this? But if you're part of the culture, it always seems normal. It always seems natural. It always seems right. This is, this is the way people have always done it. You know, this is the right way to do it. Because this is the way we do it. Now, to an outsider, they're looking at you and they're thinking that you're just a little bit weird and bizarre because of the way you do it. You ever, you know, in some cultures, women don't shave under their arms. And in some cultures, they don't bathe very frequently. Men and women don't bathe very frequently. And we think, oh, weird, how bad, how, how, how impolite, how, uh, ooh, yeah. But to them, that's normal. And they look at us and they think, wow, what a bit of weirdos. They spend so much money on water and, and washing themselves and they're sort of obsessed with this. And, you know, what's wrong with them? This is a kind of a sickness. This is an obsession. It's just different cultures. I, I saw a movie last week, uh, Pone. Uh, has anyone seen that movie uh, about this child wrestling with her, uh, her mother's death? Uh, it's a good theological movie. It's a French movie. Powerful, powerful. Best child actor I've ever seen in my life. Thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert. Okay. Well, in this movie, you know, uh, uh, you get a lot of French culture. It's a French film, and, and you have a lot of kissing on the lips and stroking of the, the hands, even adults with children. And it almost looks, from our cultural perspective, you look at it, it's like, ha, ah, what, what are you doing? This is, what is this, pedophilia? But, you know, you do that in this culture, and people get suspicious, and there's something weird with you, and you're kissing on the lips, whatever. But that's part of the culture. That's normal for them. That's, they don't think twice about that. They look at us, and they think, what a bunch of uptight, distant, cold Scandinavians, you know? No affection shown here. On the whole, cultures are, for the most part, morally neutral. I mean, whether you uh, show affection that way or not, that's part of the culture. And there's not an absolute right and wrong with that. But there are some areas where it can be the case that part of your culture is, is not morally neutral, that it is right or wrong. And one of the criteria you use, if you, have, if you believe that there are, there's an absolute truth that transcends culture, then you believe that there's a criteria against which all cultures can be measured. And when there are aspects of the culture that do not line up with that criteria, and I'm talking here about the Word of God, then you have to judge the culture as being wrong. There's, there's an area that is out of sync with the way God created the world. And it doesn't matter how normal it feels, how natural it feels, how used to it we are. If we're people of the Word and not simply products of our culture, we've got to be willing to let the Word of God critique our cultural beliefs. Amen? Amen. So you're with me so far. There's an area of our culture, a fundamental assumption about the way we see the world, the way we interpret the world. It's just, we don't think about this much because it's so much a part of us, but it stands in fundamental contradiction to what the Bible says about covenant. And as long as we are not aware of and critical of this cultural belief, we're not going to fully enter into and benefit from what the Bible says about covenant. It's crucial that we understand what the Bible says about covenant because, as I said last week, this is the hub, one of the, at least the central aspect of the hub around which the wheel of the Word of God rotates. 
It cuts to the very core. It's found throughout the Bible, this idea of covenant and what covenant means. It's found throughout the Word of God. It's, um, it's, it goes to the very center of why God created the world. Because God created the world for the sake of love, of reflecting His triune love, right? He created the world so that we might reflect the love that He is, we might reflect to Him. And the love that He is, we might reflect towards ourselves. And the love that He is, we might reflect towards one another. God created the world to glorify Himself, which is to exemplify, to manifest, to mirror the love that He is. Heaven will happen when our love for God reflects His love for us, our love for ourselves reflects His love for us, and our love for one another reflects His love for us. The Trinity gets replicated between us and God, us and ourselves, and us and each other. That's why God created the world. God created the world for relationships. And what God knows and what we need to understand is that there is no relationship without trust and trustworthiness, which means there is no relationship without covenant. Covenant is a binding agreement, we said last week. A binding agreement, uh, a, a, a pledge, a vow by which two people enter into a relationship. And something new is created when they do that. In the ancient world, and it's there to enable and sustain and protect genuine relationship. As I said last week, we'll be continuing this, this stuff a little bit later on. But the way they'd enter into a covenant is that they would, and I'm saying all this to show how we in our Western worldview have trouble understanding this. They'd make vows, they'd make pledges, pledges, they'd stipulate the conditions, and they stipulate the consequences of breaking those conditions. They have an agreement. Here's what we're doing. Here's what I can trust you for. Here's what you can trust me for. Then they'd cut an animal in two. Uh, in fact, the word for making a covenant in, in the Old Testament is to cut a covenant, and the cutting has to do with this animal. And, and then they'd walk between the animal, stating their vows and their pledges with one another, and what they're really saying is this. If I break covenant with you, if I prove to be untrustworthy, or if I cease to trust you, let it be to me as it is to this animal. Let me be torn asunder. In other words, they're saying, my very being I'm putting on the line. And so far as we have made a pledge here, I'm putting my oath, my word, my character, my integrity, my very being on the line here. And they'd make this pledge as they walked between uh, the, uh, the, the animal parts. And then they'd call on the witnesses that were there, and they'd call on God, or in pagan cultures, they'd call on the gods to be witnesses of this and to hold them accountable for it. And then they'd have a ceremonial celebration, a meal, to celebrate the new union that has just been made. And then they'd build a memorial, put up a memorial to remind them of the covenant that they just made. Uh, they would often exchange at this point, they'd exchange garments uh, as a sign of this new union. Uh, in, in, in ancient world, very often they would have garments that would signify their tribe, a kind of a tribal cloak, and, and the leaders would exchange their garments. And it was a way of saying, I'm entering into this covenant with you, and our, our identities are, are now being mixed. Our destiny is part of your destiny. Our identity is part of your identity. They still had a distinct identity, but now there was a new reality, a new union created by the pledge that they were making towards one another. So they'd exchange identities. Okay? Uh, a new reality, a wholeness was created. We have trouble, I believe, understanding that or really seeing it because of an aspect of our culture that runs directly counter to that. And what I'm talking about here is American individualism. American individualism. I'm not going to say that everything about American individualism is bad. There's a lot that is really, really good about it. But I'm going to say that there's an aspect of American individualism that runs directly counter to the Word of God, specifically with regard to this understanding of covenant. We tend to see the world in individualistic terms. Now, follow me on this. When we think about Woodland Hills Church, you look around here, what we tend to see are a bunch of individuals. We don't see a solid corporate reality. 
Okay? Ancient people would not see a bunch of individuals. They'd see a corporate reality. They'd be in touch with, with a, um, the spirit of this group, as it were. The whole is more than the parts. But we wear lenses of individualism that, that, uh, that, that cause us to see and define things individually. Good is defined in terms of good for the individual. Right is, determined in ter- is defined in terms of rights for the individual. Freedom is def- defined in terms of freedom for the individual. Those are the lenses that we use uh, to see the world with. It's how we screen things. The history of it, a little short history lesson here. Keep your thinking caps on. But we are inclined to think that this is the right way to look at the world. This is the ordinary. Hasn't everybody seen the world the way we see the world? And the answer is no. Most people, most cultures throughout time have not seen the world the way we see the world. This individualism was, was started for a lot of reasons. The breakup of feudalism, the rediscovery of Aristotle's philosophy combined with some scientific discoveries and uh, various things like that that I don't want to bore you with. Uh, the result of the whole thing was beginning in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period about four or 500 years ago, a new thing was born, and that was this idea of the individual being a center of rights, a center of freedom, and a center of potentiality. New idea. A lot of good things about that idea, too. Some down things about that idea, however. That was born, this idea of the individual, and that the world revolves around the individual, and the purpose for the whole is to enhance the individual. That was a new idea. Once that idea came around, it, it caused the English Revolution, and it caused the French Revolution, and it caused the American Revolution. And our country was the first country founded on the principle of individual freedom. A lot of good things about that. I'm an American. God bless America, okay? I'm not a communist. Do not worry about me, all right? There's a lot of good things. I'm glad I got individual rights. I'm glad I got individual freedoms. But there's some down stuff that we as kingdom people who have an allegiance to the kingdom of God before we have an allegiance to America or any philosophy or any utopian ideas, we have an allegiance to the word of God. We've got to be critical of it and ask, is this telling us the whole truth? Is this, uh, how much should we go with this? The Constitution was founded on this idea that the purpose for government is to maximize people, to maximize their freedom, their individuality, their rights. That government is, governs best, which governs least. You've heard it. And so this was a new idea, a brand new idea. A lot of good things about that idea, some down things about that idea. One thing that cultural commentators have wondered a, a little bit about is whether this idea, this experiment, America is a, is a still new idea, an experiment in freedom. And the verdict is still out as to whether or not it's going to work. Some cu- cultural commentators, not just Christians, but others, are saying that there's evidence that it will not work. You cannot put together a culture simply on the idea of individual freedom. It will turn into a jungle. The reason why it's worked so far, some are saying, is because we had, just by cultural inheritance, a lot of things in common. Uh, we are united under God, for example, and that's put, that puts parameters around freedom. Um, and that's worked so far. But as America's going on, we've lost this one nation under God business. That, does, that doesn't function very much. And some are saying that America is becoming frayed at the, end, at, at the edges. It's, getting, um, it's becoming uh, split apart. I think there's something to that. But that's not my sermon. That's not my sermon. My sermon is this. Because we have, from the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, these spectacles. We wear them without noticing it. It's like the nose on our face. We don't ever see it, but it's always there. Uh, we wear these spectacles. Because this rampant individualism colors the way we look at the world, colors the way we think about ourselves, colors the way we define our relationship with God. But it's not the whole truth. It's not our map is not the territory of the world. There's some ways in which our lenses tint the world. And there's things about the world that we miss. Some of them are very, very important. Because the Word of God, the Word of God leverages some things on the stuff that we missed. For example, there's a lot in the Word of God. 
that we just miss because we wear spectacles of individuality. We see the world in terms of individuals. We miss, we misunderstand at least, a lot of the Word of God. For example, when the Bible says that in Adam we all fell, we all fell in Adam. Read Romans 5. For in Adam all have sinned. What is it talking about? In Adam we all sinned. What's with that? Because we define guilt in terms of individuality. Uh, you know, every individual does it for themselves. You're only accountable for what you do. What is this stuff about we all fell in Adam? Why? What could I possibly, as an American individual living in the 20th century, have to do with anything that happened 7,000 years ago in Adam? I don't get it. Do you get it? I don't think so, because we wear spectacles of individualism. And that just does not make sense on an individualistic basis. It only makes sense, follow me on this, if in fact there's a wholeness to the human race, which is more than just the individuals that constitute the human race. There's an organic, from a biblical perspective, there's a reality to wholes, to the, to the human race as a whole. And in some sense, we stand or fall together, okay? Like my body, it's, I have different parts of the body, and my toe is not my finger, and my finger is not my eyes, and my eyes is not my nose. They all have individual roles, but in some sense, I'm one body. And at some level, the human race is that. Unless that's true, it makes no sense to say that we all fell in Adam. Wearing our individualistic presuppositions, which color the way we think about the world, we don't understand that. Because here, God's thinking, and God's thinking is always right, here God's thinking disagrees with our thinking. That just means that we've got to change our thinking. We also don't get a good idea of, uh, or have trouble understanding how God can treat nations as wholes. Throughout the Bible, God treats nations as single individuals. It's a wild thing. As though there's a reality to the whole that's more than just the individuals that compose that whole. Got your thinking cap still on? Nod with me if you got your thinking cap still on. Follow me? Nod if, you are follow, if you're getting this. Okay, good. Okay, okay, okay. This ain't easy. But God treats nations as individuals. And that makes no sense. In our thinking, every person stands before God in their little itsy-bitsy self. And that's the way it ought to be. That's the way it should be. We're right about that. We're not right about that. We do stand before God individually. The Bible does say that. There's a truth to individualism, but it's not the whole truth. The other part of the truth is that there's this thing called corporate solidarities. Corporate solidarity. And nations have that. I just read a couple days ago. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Verse, verse 16. And this is one of these verses that, if you're wearing the spectacles or you've got the filtering uh, ears of your culture on, you wouldn't catch it. It goes in one ear and out the other. Or you just go, huh? And you move on. But sometimes the things we go, huh, at are pretty important. Here it says this. David, uh, the Lord says to Abraham, Abraham, go out of this country, uh, out of the land of Canaan, and in four generations, your people shall return back to this land because the Amalekites' sin is not yet filled up to full measure. Don't you love it? Wait, 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 wait. What, 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 what's that about? The See, if, we're, if you're thinking individually, what is this corporate sin that he's talking about that's going to come to full fruition in four generations? It only makes sense if, in fact, the Amalekites are, are in some sense, an entity under themselves. There's a reality to the whole that's more than just the individuals. And God is apparently measuring, measuring uh, their sin, and he's saying, in essence, this. They are sinning and it's starting to tick me off big time and in about four generations I'm going to be ready to blow my cork and now I can see how I can use the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt to punish them, which is what happened uh, 400 years later. The Lord's seeing this. 
But he's measuring a nation. Not only, not only is there a wholeness to the uh, nation of the Amalekites in the present time, but over time, there's some kind of accountability. There's a wholeness there such that God will judge one generation for sins that have in part been built up by previous generations. In our Western mindset, we go, huh, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. What's with this? But from God's perspective, there's a wholeness there that we just tend to miss. This is why he says sometimes, I'm the just God who visits the sins of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. Only makes sense if there's a wholeness there that transcends the parts. I don't think today we usually get this idea of one flesh in marriage. What is this one flesh? We tend to think, well, that just means sexual intercourse, and they're going to become one flesh. Uh, No, it doesn't mean just that. That's part of it. But from a biblical perspective, there's a new union. There's a oneness. There's a solidarity. There's a reality that happens when a man and a wife enter into a covenant. There's a new us-ness, as it were, that's more than just a me plus a me. You got that one? Uh, The me plus a me creates more than just two me's. There's an us-ness there, a unity there. But if you're looking at it in terms of, of individualism, you don't see that. All you see is one me, and all you see is another me, and all you see is agreement between them, which is what we call a contract, a deal. And this is basically the way that modern people look at the world. This is why, as long as we are are locked into the grid of our individualism, the way we look at things in our culture, if that defines for us all that is real, we'll never make sense of how God judges the human race, never make sense of how God judges nations, and we will never make sense out of the idea of covenant. Because covenant, here's the bottom line, covenant is fundamentally different from contract. A covenant is a blending of identities that creates a new union, a new reality. There's an us-ness that is real. It is ontological. It is metaphysically valid. It is not just uh, a metaphor. It's not just a, a, a deal. There's a real thing that goes on there that's bound by the two people or the parties that enter into the covenant. We in our culture, because we see things individually, we tend to see all relationships as having at least a strong element of a contract between us. A contract is, is, is an agreement, a deal between two individuals that leaves the individuals the same. I got to deal with you. I'll give you this, you give me that. Uh, you know, I, I'll be nice to you, you'll be nice to me. That's a deal. Uh, you know, it's, it's just sort of an agreement, a mutually beneficial agreement, and as soon as it ceases to be mutually beneficial, you're out of there. Our culture tends to see everything in terms of contract. People don't, in our culture, generally sense a real us-ness to America. Once upon a time, maybe they did. But there's no real us-ness. What there is is a contract. The relationship we have with our government is a contract. We pay taxes, and they're supposed to protect us and give us our basic rights and maximize our self-potentiality. That's what government does. We pay taxes. It's a contract. Which is why most people, the general American populace, isn't much concerned with the integrity of the other party, the way they keep oaths and and what goes on. That's not of concern. The only thing that matters is a contract is, am I getting my end of the deal? Integrity doesn't matter in a contract as long as you've got some legal leverage to get your your end of the deal. And so as long as people are getting their wallet a little bit fatter fatter and the economy is going fine, the contract with the government is being honored, and we really don't want to hear about the messy stuff that's going on up there. Just keep the economy going well. That's your end of the deal. I'll pay taxes. That's my end of the deal. It's a contract. There's no covenant there. There's no reality there. There's no us-ness there. People tend to see marriages like that and friendships like that. It's a contract that leaves the parties unchanged. But see, a covenant fundamentally changes the parties that enter into the covenant. They, 
they still keep their individuality. You don't, this, we're not talking enmeshment here, okay? Where you lose yourself and now I have no life apart from you. No, you have, you have your individuality and yet your life is bound up with another person's life or with the life of a church or with the life of the Lord. That's what covenant is. You have state your integrity and your oath on keeping covenant with another. And that means that you're no longer the same. You're fundamentally different. A new thing, a new reality, a new wholeness has been brought into being through a covenant. Contract, no new wholeness. Covenant, there's a new wholeness there. When we look at the world individually, we see things only in terms of contract, and that is catastrophic in a lot of ways. Again, God bless America. I'm for individual rights, politically individual freedom. There's a good side to all of this. I'm not bashing individualism as such. A lot of cultures need more individualism. But as a Christian whose first allegiance is to the kingdom, I'm saying there's a downside to it. When you define the world individually and you don't see the whole, you don't define yourself as being part of a greater whole, you don't enter into binding relationships with God and with other people as a whole, and the world becomes a contract, a whole lot is missed. For example, we can't possibly understand with the Bible how God sees the church as long as we're thinking about individuals, only individuals. We think of the church as the five... Uh, the 500 million or the 1 billion or however many true believers there are on the planet, we think of it as just a collection of, of individuals. God does not see it that way. He loves you individually, passionately in love with you individually, but you are part of something much greater than yourself. And I'm not talking poetry here. I'm talking metaphysics. I'm talking reality. I'm talking ontology, all right? Uh, this is a re real thing. The Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. We read about it here in Ephesians 5. The church is the body of Christ. We think, how can it be a body? Look, there's all these different people. Or how are we one body? Isn't that just a nice poetic way of saying, you know, united we stand, divided we fall? No! The Bible means that literally, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that this is not a, a literal thing. It's a real thing. The church is called the bride of Christ, the single bride of Christ. How can 500 million people at one time, and the 500 billion or however many throughout all time, how can we constitute one bride? What is the unity of the reality? See, when we think in, through our individualistic terms, we can't capture the reality of the bride, the reality of the body of Christ, how Christ is the head of, of the body. All that only makes sense. How is the church the temple of God? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, there's one temple, there's one bride, there's one body. In fact, according to Ephesians 2, there's one new man, one new race. There's a new race. These are different ways of expressing the same reality. And the reality is this. There is, uh, we are bound together because of our common covenant with the Lord. We are bound together in a real way. That the body is a whole. There's a reality here. There's an usness here. Throughout the world, there's an usness with other Christians. An usness throughout the church in the Twin Cities. And an usness at Woodland Hills Church if we're looking at things from God's perspective and not from our individual perspectives. But we miss the whole thing if we're just looking at things individually. The way people define things individually is that the church is just one more contract that I got. Church is another contract. You know, uh, I go and, and I'll make a deal. I'll maybe pay a little bit of money and you preach a sermon and you sing a song and I'll get a little bit blessed and I'll walk away a little happier and I'll keep on coming as long as you do that better than all the competing churches. You see, that's the contract. The majority of American Christians think that way about the church. And there's no reality to the bride, no reality to the body, no reality to the temple involved in that sort of thing. It's just a me, a me and Jesus kind of a thing. Little me in my little corner, my little individual relationship with Jesus. And where that happens, there's no loyalty, no commitment, no discipleship. The bottom drops out. The reality of the unity of the church is lost. American individualism is, is sinister at eroding the body of Christ. 
And the time is coming when the church needs to get out of that. Jesus said that the world will know that he is true by the body of Christ, by the unity of the body of Christ. He'll know when, when, when we replicate who God is in our midst with one another. That's agape love. That is to say covenantal love. That is to say self-sacrificial love, committed love. When we exemplify that and we have a unity, then the world will know that there is a head. Why? Because there's a body. But if it doesn't see the body, how is it supposed to believe that there's a head? When the church begins to operate like the body of Christ in the unity of the body of Christ, then the world begins to see the, the whole reality of what God is doing in the world. But you miss the whole thing with, uh, with, with individualism. What happens is this. The body ends up being a fragmented body. I, who I am as a whole is way more than just all the parts that go into making me. You put together a finger plus a hand plus cells, you don't get Greg Boyd. I need all those things, but Greg Boyd, the unity of Greg Boyd, is, uh, is, is more than just all the parts added together. So also the church is more than all the parts added together. And if all you're seeing is the parts, you miss the wholeness that is there. And the world misses the wholeness that is there. What begins to happen is this. All the parts start to, uh, to, to work against one another. Around the globe and in the church in the Twin Cities and even in Woodland Hills Church, we begin to work against one another. Churches think like this sometimes. I got my little thing here. A preacher has his agenda. I, I got my little mission here. And then they do their little niche in the kingdom. And it's about them. There's an individualism there. They define themselves. So often in America, we define the church over and against other churches. Like a food chain. I have contracts with these people. You have contracts with those people. Don't take my people. And there's a provincialism, a pettiness, a territorialism that goes right along with American individualism. But according to the Word of God, tell me if I'm wrong here later, uh, but according to the Word of God, according to the Word of God, folks, uh, we're one body, amen? And we're to be functioning like one body. I believe, I believe it's got to be a part of every church's individual vision statement to say we will work with other churches, we'll be part of the body. We, will, we are invested in that church and in that church and whatever we can do to help this church and that church, like my toe wanting to help my finger or my finger wanting to help my eye, we're going to work in conjunction with that because we're a team, we're a bride, we're a body, we're a temple, we're one. And what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Amen? That's the one flesh reality of the church. That's where it's at. It's got to happen. Where that doesn't happen, where that doesn't happen, the body is literally diseased. If I got a part of my body that's fighting the rest of my body, it is dis-at ease, which is what the word disease means. If I got a cancer growth, it's not working in conjunction with the way the body's supposed to work. It's off there doing its own little thing. That's the definition of cancer. Whenever you've got individuals in the body of Christ or churches in the body of Christ that are just doing their own little thing, that's the definition of cancer. The body is dis-at ease. One foot wants to walk, but the other foot won't go along with it. No, he wants to walk this way, but the other foot won't go. Man, you are diseased. There's something wrong with... And the head is saying, no, go this way. And one part listens for a while, and the other part doesn't listen. And you get a bride that's like this and dismembered and really, really ugly. And the, and the world's supposed to say, oh, what a beautiful groom, because look at the beautiful bride. No, they'd say, who dismembered this babe? I mean, there's something, <laughs> something wrong here. Final word here. It's a new way of seeing, a new way of seeing. Here we are, right here, us. What is us? What is us? Is it just a bunch of individuals? Uh, is that the usness here? According to the Word of God, this contradicts our individualistic mindset, but it's true. You read Revelations chapter 2 and Revelations chapter 3, and you'll see God giving a report card to, report card to various churches. And he speaks of them as individuals. Church of Laodicea, Macedonia, churches, there's seven churches throughout Asia Minor, Asia Minor. And he writes a letter to them. You know, I like what you're doing here, bad here. I like what you're doing here, you've got to improve here. And he gives some threats and stuff. In fact, this is really weird. Let it confront our cultural mindset. 
But he addresses these letters to the angel in charge of the church. The angel in charge of the church. We got an angel in charge of us. There's a spiritual power over here. In fact, there may be more than one. In 1 Corinthians 11, here's a passage that doesn't fit our cultural mindset. Paul says, women, you ought to wear you know, veils when you're praying and prophesying because you're, really, you know, you're being dis uh, indecent when you don't do that. So he's concerned with propriety during service. And he says, wear veils on your head because of the angels. You know, what? Because of the angels. What do angels care about whether I wear a veil on my head or not? Or how, why, what do angels care whether we're being decent in church or not? Whether we're going, you know. Well, it makes perfect sense if, in fact, we are one body and there is an angel or angels in charge of the body. And we know from other writings in the Dead Sea Scrolls or whatever that it was the assumption of that age, and it was a true assumption, that whenever people of God got together, there were angels that were put in charge of keeping order. And so Paul is saying, don't tick those angels off by breaking the rules of order. Makes perfect sense. But if you don't have the cultural grid to see it, it goes in one ear and out the other. He writes a letter There's a, there, to these churches, to the angel in charge of the churches, and says, pass this message on. And he treats the body as an individual. There is an usness to believers around the globe. There's an usness to the church of the Twin Cities. And I believe there's principalities and powers that are on our side helping us. And I think there is warfare against us. And there is an usness to, here at Woodland Hills Church. A reality here. The purpose of covenant is to affirm that, to see it, because if you don't affirm it and see it, you're living in contradiction to it, okay? And, and, and to make it explicit. But there is an usness here that needs to be developed, to be aware of that. So we're not just individuals having contracts. Now, maybe that's where you are right now in your life, okay? You're visiting here, you've been here for a while, you're not sure you're supposed to be here or, or, or whatever. But there needs to be, at another level, a covenant, an understanding of an usness. Uh, this town meeting that we're having this afternoon, this, this whole sermon wasn't an advertisement for, for that, by the way. Uh, a lot of you are supposed to be there. A lot of you aren't supposed to be there. You pray about it. Uh, but what we need to do is to create this usness, to recognize, rather, the usness that is already there. To, uh, to say, to this degree, to this level, we're, we are having a buy-in here. We're, we're, we want to have our destiny wrapped up with your destiny. We want to help, you know, in, in these ways and, and whatnot. For all of us, I want to ask this question. I close with this. Do you have, you were created for a sold-out, abandoned, life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ and for some other people. That's what covenant's about. Who, I ask you, who, and let this land, who are you committed to? And what are you committed to other than yourself? Which is to say, to what degree are you taken captive by the stronghold of American individualism? Is your relationship with the Lord one of really exchanging identities, or is it just a contract? God didn't so love the world. He said his only begotten son that he could get a lot of contracts. He wants a covenant sold out. Let's walk between the animal parts relationship with us. At the same time, who in your life do you have that kind of relationship with? The one thing that will pull us out of our American individualism, this is a solution, is our willing covenant. To say there are people I'm going to be committed to. Hopefully it starts with your, your spouse. It extends to your children. And then goes out to a circle of friends. Covenant partners. That you have an agreement with. And maybe, maybe it's implicit and it's working fine. Maybe it needs to be explicit. Or maybe you need to, to create it. To say hey, I want to have this binding agreement. I'll be there for you. And it doesn't mean that it's going to last forever. Because God may call you somewhere else. But for right here, right now. I ha here's what, how we can trust each other. And walk trustworthy before each other. That alone. Relationships alone. Commitments alone is what brings us and frees us out of the pernicious lie that individualism tells the whole story. God wants a bride that's united. Amen.
that's functioning as, 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 uh, as his body. It will only happen when we get free, take off the spectacles of our cultural individualism, and buy into the Word of God that says that there's more to the story, and we need to be moving in that reality. Father in heaven, this is uh, wild stuff for us, because we are so indoctrinated to think otherwise, but I, I, Lord, I just feel like uh, a, lot of, a, a lot of scales have fallen from eyes, Lord. Um, and I thank you for it. That's your doing, Holy Spirit, and we give you the credit for it. I pray you'd continue to open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to see the full reality of the world that you've created and to see it on your terms and to live consistent with it on your terms. Lord, we want to be a united body that manifests you as head. Help us to do that. Bind us together, Lord God. Raise up people, Lord God, who have a heart uh, of buy-in here, Lord God. Uh, Lord, for all people here, I pray that you be moving them to develop a deeper covenantal relationship with you. Uh, and, and, and with others in their life, Lord God. You've told us that if we lose our life, we find it. If we seek to find our life, we lose it. Help us to learn the beauty of losing our life for you and for others, Lord God. We may grow to be the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>